Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Nahum, chapter 3. And tonight we're going to finish out this small book. Much of the book of Nahum has been the words of the Lord and bringing judgment upon them. Chapter 3 continues this and really gives some of the indictments as well as to the description, the character of the city, and it helps us even more so to have a, a greater understanding as to why the Lord is bringing judgment, but it also helps us to focus our minds in on, on the state in which we live, the time in which we live, the, the way things are today. And to remember that, really to remember that even what we go through today is still not in comparison with what many did within the scripture. That the, the mild slander and those things that we endure today are really nothing in comparison to God's people as a whole in the Old Testament as to what they were going through, what kinds of things had occurred, and how the Lord delivered them at his appointed time. So it does give us hope. It does give us encouragement. It does, it does give us that, that comfort that we need in our hearts to recognize that things really aren't as bad as what they could be. Are we surrounded by evil? Yes, we are surrounded by evil. Every generation is surrounded by evil. But the hope that we have is in the Lord, who is a stronghold in the day of trouble. We have our hope in the sovereign king who rules over the nations. We have confidence in the Almighty that none can thwart his hand. We have that, that great encouragement to know that the righteous king will set all things right. At his appointed time. So in chapter 3. We, we really see the, the complete ruin of Nineveh. It's complete destruction. It's being overthrown. And it's happening at, by, by God's word. What he says is going to come to pass. And there is nothing that they can do in order to thwart his will. There is nothing, no precautions that they may take in order that they can avoid what the Lord is saying here. This destruction. They may choose not to believe it. They may choose to continue on with their lives. They may choose to continue on in their idolatry and in their, their wickedness. But they cannot avoid the consequence of what they are choosing to do. And that's, that's the same situation as it is today. According to our very nature, we make choices. We choose. We know this. But our choices, uh, we're held responsible for. And you cannot, as much as you want to choose to do something or choose to do this and indulge in this or whatever, you cannot choose something different as far as the outcome. 
The outcome is bound by the choice. Nineveh has chosen to reject the Lord. That some years earlier they had they had repented at the preaching of Jonah. And it was <clears throat> a genuine repentance. The king calls for, for the entire city to sit in sackcloth and ash, ashes and to, to fast and to call upon the name of God, all of that. And then sometime later, they had, re, they had re, resorted back to their idolatrous ways, their great evil, and the Lord is now declaring, your time is done. And this is really, this is really, though it's a local city, it's, it's, the, it's the capital of the Assyrian Empire, it's Nineveh, the entire empire is in view because the Babylonians are going to come and take over at some point later, but it is also a view that really gives us an understanding more of what's going to happen at the end. Because when the Lord rises up at the end, this is the same, the same situation that the wicked will find themselves in. They cannot hide. doesn't matter how massive their army is. doesn't matter how, how masterful uh, their strategies. It's going to come to complete ruin. Because the Lord takes note of their wickedness. God's mercy has been granted to Nineveh at one time, but that time is done. Just as the Lord has granted mercy to all the nations even now, but at his appointed time, it will be done. So we're going to see a number of characteristics of Nineveh. And again, it'll, it'll remind us of things today things that we know are going on, perhaps in other parts of the world. And yet, it will perhaps even cause a little bit of fear on our part, not that we would endure the things that these are enduring here that are, that are given this description in Nineveh, but just imagining the state that they find themselves in, the reality of their standing before a holy God, and they don't even know it. That's the scary part. But it is great hope for God's people. So, if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. And we will read chapter 3, verses 1 to 19, finishing out this book. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. And let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. <clears throat> Woe to the bloody city! completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies, all because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. And it will come about 
that all who see you will shrink from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Where will I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Noamon, which was situated by the waters of the Nile with surrounding water, with water surrounding her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall consisted of the sea? Ethiopia was her might and Egypt too without limits. Put and Lubam were among her helpers, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Also her small children were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound with fetters. You too will become drunk. You will be hidden. You too will search for a refuge from the enemy. All your fortifications are fig trees with ripe fruit. When shaken, they fall into the eater's mouth. Behold, your people are women in your midst. The gates of your land are open wide to your enemies. Fire consumes your gate bars. Draw for yourself water for the siege. Strengthen your fortifications. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There, fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. It will consume you as the locust does. Multiply yourself like the creeping locust. Multiply yourself like the swarming locust. You have increased your traitors more than the stars of heaven. The creeping locust strips and flies away. Your guardsmen are like the swarming locust. Your marshals are like the hordes of grasshoppers settling in the stone walls on a cold day. The sun rises and they flee. And the place where they are is not known. Your shepherds are sleeping, O king of Assyria. Your nobles are lying down. Your people are scattered on the mountains. And there is no one to regather them. There is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you. For on whom has not your evil passed continually? Let's pray. Holy Father, we come into your presence tonight. We pray that the Spirit of God would humble us, would incline our hearts towards you, allowing us to see your majesty and your glory with eyes of faith, to recognize just how insignificant man is in comparison to you. They are like grasshoppers compared to you. You laugh at their rebellion but yet you will speak to them with sudden terrors at your appointed time. Father, let us be encouraged to know that you are a God who sees all. You are a God who is actively involved in everything, bringing everything to pass as you have determined. Let us be encouraged to know that even though we see such destruction in in this book, yet we see the great hope of God's people that you are a stronghold in the day of trouble and that you are only good. Father, let our hearts be encouraged by this. May the Spirit of God do a mighty work. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, amen. Please be seated. Again, we find this this language of, of war. That the Lord is against them. The Lord is coming out against them. The Lord is no longer extending mercy. He is no longer extending grace. 
Now he is only bringing about justice. The very thing that they deserved, even from the time of Jonah, they deserved justice. God had mercy at one point in time, and now that mercy has is, is been extinguished. It's, it's done. And now they only have the justice of God. Now, again, just so we, we understand that this isn't, this isn't a moral city as, as what we've talked about before. We need to reiterate that because it can really come about in our own minds. It's like, why doesn't, why doesn't the Lord just grant more time? Why doesn't he extend even more mercy? We have a lot of questions like that. But we have to resort back to this. Could God have done that? He could have if he decided to. It's all in his will and as, as to how he works and how he responds. That's, that's all within the sovereign decree of God. But what we have to come back to is, is that justice is, in fact, deserved. We can't say that justice is not deserved and somehow he's being unjust by bringing wrath upon an unbelieving nation. Though we would, in our own time, we would pray that the Lord would be merciful and we pray that he would be gracious in all of this. At the same time, we have to come back to this understanding is that justice is due, and if the Lord pours out justice, there is no injustice with him. Now, concerning this city, concerning Nineveh, he says, Woe to the bloody city. That's an oracle of doom. When you, when you see that, woe, that is an oracle of doom. An oracle of doom has been pronounced upon not just the nice city of Nineveh, but the bloody city of Nineveh. A people who love wickedness. A people who are just vile and wicked. Again, reading some of these commentaries and reading some of these, these kings of Assyria, I mean, it, it blows your mind the, the cruelty as they had marched upon one city, they had taken them captive. They, they commit all kinds of atrocities. They flayed alive 250 men. They burned many. Put many to the edge of the sword and took no hostages. Many of the kings done things like this, other things, atrocities that they have done that I've told you beforehand. This is a bloody city whose kings pride themselves on their cruelty and their violence. This is not a moral city. It's not one that we would consider to be moral, ethical in one bit. This is... This is no doubt why even the people of Israel feared this nation because of their cruelty. I mean, when you go to 2 Kings chapters 18 and following, you have Hezekiah, who hears the words of, of the king Sennacherib's his, his advisor, his spokesman. And even Hezekiah, he tears his garments and he prays unto the Lord. Knowing this kind of cruelty, and they're standing at your door, and they say to you, make a deal with our king. 
as if he would spare them. Well, that goes to the next thing of the characteristic of this city, that they are completely full of lies and pillage. Did they have any intention of sparing the people of Israel, or of Judah, rather, whenever they was at the, the city, the city walls? Their arrogance? The spokesman for the king would say things like, Don't listen to Hezekiah. Don't, don't listen to him that your God will deliver you. Your God sent me here. Did any of the other nations' gods deliver them? And the people are hearing this. Hezekiah is hearing this. Enough to cause fear. And yet, at that particular time, though, the Lord did deliver Hezekiah. And he says to Hezekiah, basically, in our understanding of things, he says, I'll take care of this. And so 185,000 Assyrians died as a result of the Lord sending one angel. The Lord has the power to deliver, but just just the, the sheer arrogance of this people to come to the walls of the city of God and to blaspheme him. Their cruelty, their lies. They had no intention of making a deal. They want to pillage. That's, they're, they're full of lies and full of pillage. It's not as if they had a, a market for themselves in which they were able to get rich on their own. No, they took from others. That's how they gathered their wealth. They are a bloody city. They're a city that is full of lies. A city that prides itself on its, its violence, that her prey never departs, the noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling wheel, galloping horses. I mean, all, these, all this army does is, is, is slay, slay the people. Many slain, a mass of corpses and countless dead bodies stumble over the dead bodies. One particular king, he would take the bodies of the dead and make pillars whether it was with the bodies or the heads. If I understood right, he would make pillars of even the living. There are many slain, a mass of corpses and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies. What cruelty. What wickedness. And their cruelty, according to some commentators, was unmatched in the ancient world. That's how vile that they were. And God's people are living under the threat of this kind of people. This kind of nation. A nation full of lies. A bloody city. Prides itself on its violence. And is an idolatrous city. He speaks of their harlotries. All because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. They have turned to the other gods. They've turned to the gods of the people. They have turned to incantations and witchcraft and sorcery. There are all kinds of things that they have found 
from the ancient world of incantations and such. There are people who, who serve demons, really. When you're looking at false gods, what are they? People who serve the enemy. Who look to the stars for answers to the future. Practice astrology. These are the Lord's indictments against this city. And to think that at some time earlier, again, this was a city that repented. A city that turned to the Lord in the days of Jonah. Maybe a hundred years earlier, somewhere like that. And to think of all the vile things that have happened from that point on. But here's what the Lord says. In light of this city, in light of the characteristics of this city, a city that he once shown grace to and mercy, he says this, in light of all of this, I am against you. That is his message. That is, that is the Lord's words against the wicked, against this vile city. I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. He is Yahweh of the armies. And that is so important to recognize that, that title that he's using here. I'm against this bloody city who prides itself on its violence and its armies and its pillage. I'm the Lord of the armies, and I'm against you. That in itself for any rational person, if they could just understand this just a little bit, would cause such terror and fear to grip their hearts. And yet usually that terror and fear does not occur until what the Lord says actually occurs in his time. Because they think to themselves, I have time. I think that this isn't going to happen. They deceive themselves that things will continue on as they have from the beginning, just as the mockers do in the last days. But here's what he does. I will lift up your skirts over your face and show your nakedness and show the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. He's going to humiliate them. This great power of the ancient world that causes fear into the other nations. The Lord's basically saying, using this kind of language, I'm going to humiliate you in front of all of them to show them how powerful I am in comparison to you. You know, that's very similar language just to think of, of what the Lord is doing. I mean, a passage that, we, that we've, we've been familiar with before in Isaiah chapter 14 <clears throat> this is a <clears throat> Isaiah 14 is is referred to as as a the taunt of Babylon. This is this is a judgment against Babylon in Isaiah 14. Though it is often looked at as maybe a text that is referring to the fall of Satan, we can debate over that, but it is to the king of Babylon. It is written to him. It is a taunt against the king of Babylon. 
And he says, maybe we'll, we'll read some of the parts that we don't normally read. <clears throat> so in chapter 14, we'll begin in verse 3. And it will be in the day when the Lord gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you have been enslaved, that you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say, How the oppressor has ceased! How the fury has ceased! The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, which used to strike the peoples in fury with unceasing strokes, which subdued the nations in anger with unrestrained persecution. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into shouts of joy. Even the cypress trees rejoice over you and the cedars of Lebanon saying, Since you were laid low, no tree cutter comes up against us. Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings and the nations from their thrones. They will all respond and say to you, even you have been made weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp and all the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you and worms are your covering. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who weaken the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble? Who shook the nations? Who shook the kingdoms? Who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities who did not allow his prisoners to go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you have been cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch, clothed with the slain who are pierced with a sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a trampled corpse. You will not be united with them in burial because you have ruined your country. You have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers not be mentioned forever. Prepare for his sons a place of slaughter because of the iniquity of their fathers. They must not arise and take possession of the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. What language? From the Lord of hosts to the king of Babylon. Is this the one? Who made the kingdoms to shake? The kingdoms to tremble? You've been cast down just like us. And to think that the kings of Assyria were even, even more cruel and wicked than the kings of Babylon. And yet the language that you're finding in Nahum chapter 3 are very reminiscent of what we're finding in Isaiah 14. It's a taunt. This is what's happening. This is what's going to happen to you. And the kings of Assyria, whenever the Lord rises up against them in the time that he did, there's nowhere that they can go. There's nowhere that they can hide. And the Lord is going to humiliate them just as he will the king of Babylon sometime later. The empire of Babylon. Who are you 
in comparison to the Almighty. That's the taunt. That's the message. I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. It will come about that all who sees you will shrink from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Where will I seek comforters for you? He will humiliate them to the extent that even people who pass by, who hear of Nineveh, who remember Nineveh, will look and say, we want no part of that. And just to help even more so for them to understand that they have no security in any of this as the Lord has declared war against them, he says, are you no better than Noammon? Which is a reference to Thebes. Thebes was the rival of Nineveh. Perhaps, as some, some commentators would say, maybe even as powerful as Nineveh, as great as Nineveh. And what happened to them? Well, he says there, you think of all the security that, that Thebes thought that it had, whose, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall consisted of the sea. Ethiopia was her might in Egypt too without limits. Yet she became an exile and went into captivity. That's what happened there. The rival of Nineveh. They went into captivity. And they were no more. Why? Because the Lord's message to them was the same. Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. And he lays waste. To his enemies. All our great men were bound with fetters. You too, he says, will become drunk. You will be hidden. You too will search for a refuge from the enemy. You too will become drunk. You're not going to see this coming because you're not thinking right. You're not thinking clearly because you pride yourself. You're blinded. You will search for a refuge from the enemy, and the implication is you are not going to find one. You're not going to find a refuge. Your fortifications, as you're you're looking at all those verses there, your fortifications, all your men, all your armies, all your traitors, all the soldiers, everyone, will fall. There will be utter devastation here. And there's nothing that they can do when the Lord rises up against them. You think of this. When we're looking at the language of the book of Revelation, for example, and you're reading of how all the nations of the earth that are gathered by Satan come against the Lord, what is it that the Lord does? He speaks. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, the way that he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. He just speaks. What can the nations do? That's why he laughs at them. 
That's why the Psalms describe that for us. He, he laughs at them. He laughs at their arrogance. He laughs at their rebellion. What are they in comparison to him? Like grasshoppers. Unless you've really got a phobia with bugs, you're not often going to be afraid of a grasshopper. Does anything of man make the Lord nervous? Absolutely not. Because once the Lord is determined he's going to do something, just as the king of Babylon figures out in the book of Daniel, none can thwart your hand or say to you, what have you done? He says, your shepherds are sleeping, O king of Assyria. Your nobles are lying down. They're unprepared. It's just as it was, I think, in the book of Isaiah when they're saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. They're deceiving you. They're lying asleep. And, and this, is where, this is where it really you know, causes me to be anxious thinking of this. Sudden terror, sudden doom is over this people, and they don't realize it. And we're children of God. We're not going to endure the things that this nation is going to endure. The people of God didn't. When we're thinking of, of how this is pertaining to the end, it doesn't, it's not anything that we ourselves will endure because the justice of God was satisfied in Christ. But just considering what the scripture says, that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, that he is a consuming fire. And to think about the reality of the unbelieving in the state that they are before a holy God, and they don't know it. Because they choose to walk in ignorance, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. All of that. They don't know it. Those that should guide the city, perhaps the religious leaders are in view here. Your shepherds are sleeping. They're unaware. Your nobles are lying down. Your people are scattered on the mountain. There is no one to regather them. Look what he says. There is no relief. For your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. At one time, there was mercy and grace, and now your wound is incurable. It's, it's almost as if the language that's used there is very similar to what Jesus would use in Matthew chapter 12. When you're thinking of Jesus casting out demons and all of this, and they attribute the works of the Son of God to Satan. They're, he, he's casting out devils by the power of Satan. He's in league with Satan. And Jesus says, blasphemy against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not. So he basically said to them, in the moment that they attributed the works of God, the Holy Spirit, to that of the great enemy, Satan, he says, you're done. Your fate is sealed. 
And that's really what's happening here. The Lord is saying, I'm against you and you're done. Now, again, a lot of strong language there, a lot of hopeless language. But this particular pronouncement has not been given just yet as far as for the nations as of right now. Well, when will it be too late? It'll be too late once he appears. Then it's too late. But while there is still time and while we still have breath in our lungs and the people of the nations have breath in their lungs, there's still time that perhaps grace and mercy can be extended to them. But when that time is done and the Lord brings swift judgment upon them, there is no injustice on his part. He is dealing out exactly what is deserved. And understanding that is what promotes in us an even greater Love for the Lord, recognizing that should have been me. Judgment should be mine. I, I earned it. But Christ satisfied it for me. What makes us even what makes us better than any other? Really nothing. Nothing makes us better. The only thing that makes us better is Christ himself, and that's only because of his righteousness. And because he has chosen to grant grace, and he has chosen to extend grace, extend mercy, make a sinful people the objects of his love, just because he has chosen to do that, then we do have the privilege of being called children of God. And for those that are privileged to be called children of God and to receive this grace and mercy by no other reason than God chooses to do this out of his love. He chose to do this out of his love. And for those that are in Christ, we look to the Lord not as, not as a, a judge in the sense of the unbelieving, but we see the goodness of God that is found in him, that is found in Christ, and that he is a stronghold in the day of trouble for those who take refuge in him. That's the hope. All this language should really drive us to that, to, to that reality, to that truth. Oh, Lord, you have granted grace and you've granted mercy at this particular time, and you are indeed a stronghold in the day of trouble. You are a refuge to us in the day of trouble as a result of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work. That's where hope comes in. But what about our, our nation as a whole? Well, no nation is going to stand before the Lord. No nation will. There's not, there's not going to be any nation that the Lord would say, you people as a whole, you were all right. You did good. No, that'll never happen. Because any nation as a whole is, is not what it should be to hear those words. But what does the Lord do? He chooses out of the nations his, his bride for his son, the bride for his son. 
So the nation isn't going to stand, but for those that the Lord has chosen out of the nations, they come and they call upon Christ and they have time because the Lord is still giving us time. The fact that we're here tonight and we're, we're, we're talking and, and we're worshiping, that the Lord has granted time. So what about our loved ones? Well, they still have breath in their lungs. There's still hope and there's still time. And the Lord can do a mighty work in someone that really just can put us in awe to think, I never would have thought that one. They just seemed too far gone for me. And yet, what does the Lord do? He says, nothing is impossible with me. He shows his might and his power by every soul that he converts. He can do all things. There's the great hope and the great comfort for us. Judgment is coming, yes. And instead of being asleep, we are to be the ones on the rampart in the tower giving the, the news that judgment is coming, but the good news is that Christ has died, that you can be saved. Pray for your loved ones. Pray for your friends. Pray for this nation as a whole. Yes, let us pray. And let us pray that God would extend mercy to those whom we know and love, that God would grant mercy to this nation if he would if he chooses to do so in the sense of halting what evil has been progressing in the past number of years, to hold it back as he has the power to do, let's pray for that absolutely. Let us pray that the Lord would give us opportunity to snatch some out of the fire. Let us pray, indeed. But to rest assured in this, that at God's appointed time, he will right everything that is wrong. And the judge of all the earth will do right. That's, that's our confidence. And there is a sense in which we should take pity too. Over those that are in such rebellion. You don't even know what you're doing. You have no idea. Of, of the state that you're in. I was. I was. Uh, Downstairs studying, I had a, a, a news thing come over my, my phone there that a famous guitarist has just died. Whether that was today, I don't know. I haven't read the article yet. But he had just died. And if I'm not mistaken, that particular man, very, very talented guitarist for sure, singer, um, was a Scientologist. It's like God has given such grace and kindness even toward the unbelieving to allow them to prosper in the ways that he has. But it, it causes a sense of pause. I mean, just, just that pause to think you lived your life squandering what things have been granted to you in the Lord, choosing an idolatrous religion over the true and living God, and now your time's done. That's a scary thought. So there, there should be a pity and a compassion that we have as well. 
recognizing the state of the wicked before a holy God. And I pray that the Lord would increase that in us, that compassion. Uh, in the days to come, and, and even now, that that compassion would be increased in us. That we would have a heart for them. Because having a heart for them is what's going to drive us even more so by the Spirit of God working in us in order to reach out. So let us have our hope in the Lord. Let us pray that the Lord would use us and have confidence that the judge of all the earth will do right. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank you once again for your word and for all that we learn from it, your character put on display for us. Well, Father, thank you that in Christ you delivered us. You delivered us from your wrath. Not because of anything special in us, not because of anything you foresaw in us, anything that we would even remotely do. You, you did it out of your sovereign free choice, out of your infinite love. We owe everything to you. So thank you so much for this great gift of salvation. And Father, let us not take it for granted and let us not think ourselves better than any other, but to have compassion, to have kindness towards those that do not share our views, that don't share our love for you. Help us, Lord, to be compassionate and to show your character to them through our conduct and through our words that at this particular time that they may see that you are a gracious and merciful God. Father, use us. Use us as instruments in your hand. And may Christ be magnified in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's children said, Amen. Thank you for your attention, and you are dismissed.